Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and today my guest is C. Pam Zhang, author of the astonishing debut novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold, which transports readers to California at the tail end of the gold rush and tells the tale of two siblings trying to make sense of their family's history and find a home of their own in the hard scrabble Wild West. In telling their story, Zhang also illuminates a darker, uglier underside to the American dream. The novel was long listed for last year's Booker Prize, as well as the Rathbones Folio Prize, and was picked by Barack Obama as one of his books of the year. Pam was born in Beijing, but moved to the United States when she was four, and today lives in San Francisco, where I'm talking to her um, from for this show today. Welcome to our shows, Pam. Um, I'm so glad that you could come on the podcast today. Thank you, Lucy. I'm really excited to be here and just talk about great art made by women. This is absolutely perfect. I mean, I've been looking forward to speaking to you ever since I first read your novel. So this is a wonderful sort of culmination of that. And I think we've got some great uh, other recommendations you're going to be bringing up later in the show. Um, But first, I do want to start um, asking you a few questions about the novel, if I may. Um, And to begin with, I'd really love you if you could talk a little bit about um, how much of these hills is gold as a California novel in particular, um, which I think, especially for readers or listeners here in the UK, probably needs a little bit of extra distinction from what we might think of as an American novel. Um, Though obviously there's a lot of crossover, but to my mind, you know, this is very much a great American novel, Um, but it is set in California and it is very much about California and California's history. Um, So yeah, tell me a bit about where this came from. Is it from your own experience of living in the state? And what was it about this particular bit of um, California history that really attracted you in the first place? So my family moved to California when I was about eight years old. So it's a very formative childhood experience where we lived in Kentucky, way across the country to begin with. And we drove for many days across these epic landscapes where you could see torrential rain forming from, you know, tens of miles away where you would see light lightning split the sky. Um, And so I've always had this deep connection to that landscape of the American West and of California. I've always been in awe of how huge it is compared to, you know, the smallness and the ordinariness of human life. And um, as as I grew up, a lot of the writers of the American West and of California that I loved were doing this thing where they set people against this landscape and had the landscape sort of mirror the emotions of the people sort of have the landscape kind of lift these people's lives up to feel, you know, as epic as Greek myths. Um, And that was something that just really struck a chord with me. It really rang true to my lived experience, Um, especially because I think another, another artifact of the American West, this idea of manifest destiny, of finding new lands, of being frontiers people is also in a way about the destruction of that wilderness and of that land as people come onto it. There's this, there's this kind of sadness and this nostalgia inherent in it. Um, and those things also echoed this sort of loneliness and angst that I felt growing up as an immigrant child, um, you know, as a very, as a child of a very financially insecure family. Um, 
so that's a very, very long way of saying that the American West, I think, has always been a way to think about the American dream mm -hmm. in both its shiny nature, but also in the way that it crumbles, um, in the way that the dream sort of falls apart as the land is falling apart, as the promises are falling apart. Um, this is a very long answer. No, that's a brilliant answer. If anything, it's made me think about lots of other sort of strands and ideas. And I think because home as a, a sort of subject is so important in this novel, the idea of the siblings, um, you know, asking questions about where they're building their home, who they're building their home with, what makes a home, um, and that landscape that seems to sort of talk to them in a particular way. So it's very interesting to hear you talk about your own experiences with the landscape. I mean, California, do you think, How may I ask, how long have you been there now in San Francisco uh, this this time round, as it were? Right. So I feel like it's a little bit of a lie because pandemic means that I've actually moved up north a little bit. I'm in the Washington area temporarily. Who knows uh, how long? So it's like, <laughs> what is time? I don't know what time is. Can anyone say where they will be in a year? Um, but uh, I was living in San Francisco for a stretch of like three or four years um, before this most recent move. And it's probably, I don't know, the third or fourth time in my life that I, I've moved back to the Bay Area, moved back to California. Um, and I think that sort of tension between, I don't know, is it my home? And yeah. am I going to be there forever? Um, is that sort of obsession with that question has, has affected the book in many ways. Um, because I wrote the first draft of the novel when I was actually living out of the country in Bangkok, Thailand. And that distance from the physical landscape was really important to the way I crafted the story. What I always say was that my intention was to capture that landscape as an impressionist painting, not as a photograph. I wanted there to be some space between reality and my, my portrayal of the landscape. And in that space, I think there's a lot of room for, for, for this building of a mythology, which is, which is something I'm really interested in as it pertains to the American West. Hmm. Do you think also that you needed that distance yourself in order to be removed from the place when you're writing about it? I've often heard authors talk about yeah. how it, it was only when they moved to another country or a different city that they were then able to kind of look back and with a little bit of distance to realise that actually what they wanted to write about was this particular place, but they, they couldn't have done it maybe while they were there. Yeah, certainly. I think that James Baldwin was very famous for saying that, right? He was only able to write about America with the distance of living in Paris. Um, mm -hmm. And I felt a similar way because, you know, I my I was born in China, so living in Thailand isn't exactly the same. But at but it was my first experience as an adult living in a major Asian metropolis, where for the first time, me walking down the street, I was unremarkable. Like. I completely blended in with the crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was just an experience I'd never really had in America. And it wasn't until I left that I realized I'd been robbed of that. And that really started, you know, started me down these pathways of thinking about what it means to belong in America. And, you know, it's, it's so painfully relevant again in 2021, but are Asian Americans ever allowed to think that they fully belong in America? Um, and so, yes, that distance is absolutely necessary, I think. I also have realized that I process emotions fairly slowly, like it sometimes takes me years to chew on them. <laughs> so there's that too. I think that's, uh, I like your honesty there. 
<laughs> sometimes it takes a little bit longer. And let's move on to the first question that I want to ask you. Tell me about two books that are currently on your bedside table, please. I've been reading um, this book called Stories of the Sahara by this Taiwanese writer named Samao and also rereading Picnic at Hanging Rock by mm -hmm. Joan Lindsay. Um, and, you know, at first I was like, why am I reading these books? Like, what is the thread between them? But I really think the thread between them is that, um, you know, all our lives, I think, have felt kind of dull and leached of, of sort of everyday magic by the pandemic, by being stuck inside, by having such a large portion of our, our lives cut off from us. Um, that I think that both these books really tap into this desire to, one, kind of travel, and two, to right. rediscover what I call sort of like magic in everyday life. They're not necessarily books of magical realism. Indeed, Stories of the Sahara is, is a memoir about mm -hmm. um, the writer's real lived experience uh, living in Africa. But I think what I'm missing these days is really that sense that, you know, you walk out in the world, you don't know what's going to happen that day. You don't know who you're going to speak to, um, what you're going to see. And that spark, right? That sense that like anything might happen. You might hear something wonderful. You might see something awful. You might taste something that you've never tasted before. Um, that sort of spontaneity that that kind of magic of life is missing. And I found it in both of these books. I think I'm just hungry for these, these moments that are a little bit opaque to us, these moments that you kind of have to just accept that you might never understand fully what happened, but that it had some kind of emotional impact on you and then kind of move on. Um, and I really love that. Have you found during the pandemic that you've been rereading uh, certain books for a sort of sense of, I don't know, whether it's comfort um, or it's what you're looking for here, something like mystery or something extra to our day to day lives that are quite dull and staid at the moment? Or have you found yourself reading or have you found yourself not able to read for a lot of time? I know a lot of people have suffered with that. I think for me, it's, it's really both. I mean, I just have, I guess, so many more hours in the day to read now, right? So <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of both. I definitely have been rereading, um, you know, some other books I've been rereading are short novels. Mm -hmm. um, I really like that experience. I've been rereading um, The Lover by Marguerite de Ross and Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rides. Um, and I, I, there's something really nice about being able to sit down for the space of like an hour or two and just fall into another world and then get back out of it at the end. Um, and I have, I don't know, I've been reading new books, but also I've been reading a lot of Reddit. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> a lot of, a, a good chunk of my word consumption these days is in, in the form of Reddit. Is that something new from the in sort of post-pandemic or is it just time on your hands and in front of the internet? <laughs> I'm going to give what uh, the answer that's going to sound more elegant, which is, yes, it's something new in the pandemic. But <laughs> really what I think I've loved about Reddit is, again, I really miss, for example, like walking out in a major city, right? And just like overhearing snippets of people's conversations. Like you'll hear mm -hmm. of two people like arguing um, about their dinner plans or you'll hear like a mother like speaking to her child. Um, I, I miss eavesdropping. Yeah. And Reddit is the rare social media app where I don't think most people know the the users that they're following, right? It's not like I'm following my best friend from high school and my three college friends, and we all know each other off the internet. It's very anonymous. Mm -hmm. And so I just eavesdrop on people's lives and I love it. 
I think that is exactly one of the things that a lot of people are missing, other than the obvious, you know, you miss your friends, you miss being able to do the sort of certain freedoms that you had, obviously, or one has before this. But actually, so many people I speak to have said that they miss those random encounters. It's the kind of the conversations you overhear in the pub or in a bar or, you know, just when you're grocery shopping or something or those little conversations you get into with people you don't know. And those are the things that we really don't have in our day at the moment at all, do we? We're pretty nosy as a species, yeah. aren't we? <laughs> yes. I mean, I know I am for sure. So. <laughs> but I think everyone is to a certain degree. And I figure, I don't know, maybe this is an assumption I make, but I think that writers often are people who like to um, overhear and eavesdrop in a, in a very kind of creative way. Let's put it like that. <laughs> steal. We can just call it steal. It's funny. It's like this joke I have where um, I feel like most lay people would think that um, of all the types of writers that, you know, nonfiction writers are more most likely to like take something from real life and then sort of like put it in their work. But it's actually fiction writers. I've been in these scenarios where like, um, a, a writer of fiction, a friend of mine, and I, we were watching this like little scene play out on the street and it was just so good. And both of us turned to each other at the end and we're like, I'm using that. That's fine. <laughs> to argue over it. Like. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> eavesdropping, love it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, bearing in mind that we can't do that kind of eavesdropping at the moment, could you tell me about a particular article, podcast, film, series or song that you've been uh, listening or watching, uh, reading and has made you think recently, please? I so, so recommend the podcast You're Wrong About. Um, I love this podcast so much. I don't know if you've heard of it, Lucy. No, I haven't. Tell me about it. Um, so it's this conversation between two journalists, Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall, and they tend to pick a misunderstood cultural event, for example, the death of Princess Diana, or for example, the trial of O.J. Simpson and the murder of Nicole Brown. And they just go into it. They tell you everything that you've had wrong about it and sort of like the falsity of these cultural myths we've, we've, um, we've created around this event. And usually, unfortunately, because we live in a patriarchy, um, a lot of what we've been wrong about is victim, you know, is bashing women, um, oh. is falsely sort of like sexualizing or blaming women. And it's it's just amazing because there are, these are two like legitimate hardcore journalists. I don't know how much time they put into the research for each episode, but it feels like possibly hundreds of hours. Like they usually read like several books, you know, look up all the photos on the internet that you could find about this event or this person. Um, and I just love it so much. It's just the kind of like in-depth, it's like if you had two of your smartest friends in mm -hmm. a room and you had given them like endless time and hopefully funding um, to dive deep into a topic, it's that's what it's like, and I, it's something that I listen to every every few days, trying to sort of savor it. Sounds fascinating. Every time, are you finding out things that you really didn't know about the whatever situation or whatever scenario they're discussing? And are you having to kind of rethink your own thoughts on these these sort of cultural events as well in the process? Oh, absolutely. I feel once I've listened to these podcasts that I knew nothing going in. And I think maybe <laughs> circling back to our early conversation about missing, you know, everyday magic and spontaneity and overhearing, this feels like a little bit of that too, right? Like, I feel like the pandemic has made my brain into this tiny, dull, gray box. 
where I can't break out of my own thoughts. Nothing feels fresh or exciting. And so it's amazing to be challenged um, in this way by a podcast like this. Yeah. And it sounds also, I mean, I, I don't know, I hate saying things that are things are timely, because it's it sort of, um, I feel on one hand that then you're undermining their sort of credentials to stand alone. But this does sound like an incredibly timely thing to sort of be, uh, to be given stories that then you need to go and rethink and actually work out about what's the truth, what's the kind of, what are the myths that have risen up around a sort of a, a big cultural event, like uh, the ones you're talking about, and then to have to kind of cut those down and start from scratch again. How fast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fascinating. I wonder, I wonder how, do you know how they choose their topics or are they things that they have been interested in for a long time? Or? I think they're just they're things that the, the two journalists have been interested in for a long time. And I feel like you can, you can feel um, they're like talking about a lot of events in the 90s because that's their generation. That's my generation too. And so like, especially if you fit into that generational slot, it's particularly satisfying. Okay, I like the idea of this. I'm going to definitely go and look it up and um, hopefully have my own uh, ideas of certain probably formative events from my own life that are now going to be overturned, right? (laughs) Are you excited for that? (laughs) Yes, I am. Definitely. Straight away after this, I'll be looking it up. Our shells will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Pam Zhang about what well, 90s cultural events that we're learning the other side of the story about. Uh, but that's uh, that's a different podcast altogether. Um, next up, Pam, uh, I'd like to ask you about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way, please. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, which is this like tiny slim book. It's probably barely over 100 words of fairy tale retellings. Um, And I feel like maybe in 2021, that sounds less revolutionary because I think we've seen an incredible upsurge and sort of like reimagining of like Greek myths in the Mm. same way that Madeline Miller has done and fairy tales. Um, But I don't know when she wrote this book, probably in the 1980s. It it was very radical. And when I first encountered it, I just had my mind blown. Because first of all, Angela Carter is just an absolute genius with language and words. Um, And she truly makes you feel as you're reading each of these stories that you're like seeing language in the world in a new way, in a fresh way. But what I really love is that she doesn't just simply retell these fairy tales. She often turns them on their head, right? Mm -hmm. So there are, um, you know, several sort of reimaginings of beauty in the beast in this this book. And I think the final one, it isn't about, you know, the love of a gentle woman changing the beast so he becomes a gentle man. 
actually both of them become tigers in the end and you see right and you see the girl at the center of the story just like embrace the monstrosity and freedom of and ferocity of this new form um and i just really love this this idea that you could take this old styed form and explode it um and sort of thumb your nose at some of its conventions and and make it absolutely your own i i just love this book so much it's so fascinating. You mentioned um, about all this, this sort of current trend towards retellings of whether it is Greek myths, fairy tales. And you're right, there's been a huge move towards that in recent years. But I don't know about you, but I feel that um, a lot of them, and I won't, I, and some of them are very good, and I won't name any names, but some of them do seem rather dull and really very unimaginative in terms of they'll just do a kind of very obvious switch around of the story and like you say what's so interesting about the bloody chamber of I, it's been a while since i read it but i think i remember something quite similar to you being really taken aback about how fascinating these stories were and how very cleverly and like very intensely they'd been shifted as well to make you really think about power play and sort of sexuality and all these different ideas that would kind of maybe bubbling under the surface of the original stories right yeah, and I think that there's something very radical and really feminist about this idea of looking at existing structures, in this case, the structure of a narrative, the structure of a, of a cultural myth, and saying it is only useful to me until it is not. And then I'm going to radically reimagine something utterly different. Um, you know, I was thinking about this too in relation to Daisy Johnson's novel, Everything Under, which right takes its cues from a Greek myth. But she says in interviews that at some point she was inspired by Oedipus and then she's like, and then it didn't serve me anymore. And I just veered left. I went in a completely different direction. I had to follow you know, the story that she was writing um, and not feel locked in place by, by the old structures of narrative. And there's something really, really brilliant about that and about what Angela Carter was doing. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Do you know exactly or roughly, let's say, when you first encountered Carter's work? Were you a student at the time? Was it something that really did it seem as radical to you from the moment you read it? Oh, it absolutely exploded my my brain open. So I encountered it for the first time in my undergraduate degree. I was at Brown University and I was very lucky to be there because um, up until then I'd been reading fairly conventionally, you know, the, I read a lot, but it was like the high school canon, like the Hemingways and the Carvers. And Brown had this really rather experimental, actually, literary arts department um, where we were we were reading, you know, like lyric essays. We were reading uh, authors like Renee Gladman, who um, is like kind of poet slash prose writer slash has like these incredible drawings in um, some of her latest work. And I encountered Angela Carter in the context of all this, um, and it was it was really about sort of like taking the tree of what I thought of as you know, the Western literary canon and just like shaking it, like pulling its roots out, um, thinking about what else you could graft onto it. Mm. Going back to um, uh, how much of these hills are gold, just for a second, if I may, how much when you were writing that book, were you doing something similar and thinking, you know, there are stories that have been told about the American West, there are stories that have been told about the gold rush, but I want to do something differently. I want to look at a, a story that kind of hasn't been told before. I want to look at characters who haven't been given that sort of agency and subjectivity before. Oh, absolutely. 
Um, the thing about the the genre of the the Western is that it has been so whitewashed, right? Um, when I say Western, we all probably have a very similar image in our heads. It's probably like a Clint Eastwood type, burly, macho, white cowboy, like swaggering across like an open divide and like the world is his oyster and he can do whatever he wants within it. Um, and that's just not actually true to what was happening back in the day. It was an incredibly diverse place. There were Chinese immigrants, there were black cowboys, there were Latinx cowboys. Um, and we just don't have any of that because what the power of, of narrative and storytelling and the, the great weakness of it, right, is that it can utterly rewrite historical fact in our cultural imagination. Once we see that image perpetuated through dozens and dozens of films and movies, that becomes what we think was true of the day. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to explode that form just as Angela Carter exploded the form of, um, of the fairy tale. I wanted to write a novel that centered the experiences of Asian Americans in that time that, again, made their lives as swaggering and cool and action-packed and epic as any of these Westerns, as any of these Greek myths. Yeah. And how hard was it to find, I mean, I presume you obviously did a huge amount of historical research for this novel, um, or maybe not, maybe I'm just assuming, but it seems so brilliantly sort of steeped in the history it feels very real on the page um and were these stories hard it seems like they you know the way you talk about them they weren't hard to find they are maybe just not as uh, sort of they're not centered in the way that we might hope they might be in future right so because I went through the public education um, system in California for a lot of my childhood, I had this foundational knowledge about the presence of Chinese immigrants in the gold rush. And certainly, you know, like I had my own lived experience as a Chinese immigrant in California. So when I wrote the first draft of the novel, I actually didn't do any additional historical research. I kind of like knew the rough shapes. Um, and then later in subsequent drafts, you know, I read uh, several books. I highly recommend this um, this book by the scholar Helen Zia called Asian American Dreams that gives a, a really great comprehensive history of, of many waves of Asian immigrants to America. And I would line up certain historical facts, again, in as much as they served the novel. But at the same time, I have a sort of defiant stance about that because I think one of the sad things about um, written Western history as it has been recorded is, right, history is written by the victors. It's very white, it's very male, and it's very straight. And so there are so many lives, people, facts in history that have been either willfully erased or accidentally forgotten. And we can't actually recover all of them. And so, it is an act of, of defiance and I think a feminist act to say that I'm not going to tie myself only to the facts that we've been allowed to have. I am going to imagine into these spaces of erasure because I'm not a historian, right? And it is a very important task for historians to go back and try to like actually recover as much as they can. And it is an equally important task for artists for writers to use our craft and to use our empathy to try to imagine into these lives that have been lost from history. Mm, yeah, absolutely. 
And finally, Pam, if I may, could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire? Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Padma Lakshmi. Brilliant. <laughs> Go for it. So um, I I guess like in some ways I grew up with Padma Lakshmi. I don't know how long Top Chef has been, has been going now, but um, I feel like I was watching it at the end of high school and in college at the same time that I was sort of like awakening to the idea of feminism, right? Because I grew up in an immigrant family and the thing about first generation immigrants is they're often fairly socially conservative. Right. So like I my mom, I think she I think she's a feminist. But I don't know if she would ever identify with that term. It certainly wasn't something I heard. And so like, you know, at the same time that I was watching Padma Lakshmi on Top Chef in college, I was learning about feminism with a capital F. And what was really interesting is for quite a few years, I don't think I understood that she was a feminist because I had this um, very stiff kind of two dimensional notion of what feminism looks like. Um, have you ever read the webcomic Hark a Vagrant? No, I haven't. Do I? This... Oh, no, I do. Yes, I have. I'm just thinking it's the one that the picture of the woman riding the bicycle on the front of it, right? Yeah, I yeah, do know. yeah. It's, yeah. It's another, um, the comic artist is Kate Beaton, and I suppose it's another example of sort of, sort of playing fast and loose with history yes. um, and narrative. But the reason I'm referencing this is she has this like kind of hilarious series of comics she does about um, straw feminists where she like renders these feminists as like the patriarchy sees them as these like hissing like snake tongue like burn the bra kill all men yeah. <laughs> like take over the world destroy all joy um and i think for a while i kind of had that notion of feminism i thought feminism was like in opposition to right like to like sexualities to sensuality to having fun um to to some of like the conventional forms of pleasure and um, so what's been really fascinating for me is I think like in the process of watching Top Chef, in the process of sort of like shifting my notions of what fem feminism looks like and what who a feminist is, um, Padma Lakshmi has also evolved. Like, you know, I think because she started out as a model, mm. right, there is this notion that that's quote unquote, all she is, like all she is, is a sex object. She doesn't have a brain. She doesn't have opinions. She can't, you know, she isn't a good judge of food. Um, and it's just been amazing to see her step forward culturally as like, she has like been a voice that's pro-immigrants, pro-women's rights. I read her memoir a couple of years ago and she talks about, you know, um, her, her marriage in which she was like silenced and the needs of her body were ignored um and it's just she's an incredible amazing empowering person to me because i think that she she's just some, someone who's proved that feminism is like it's it's multifaceted um it is pleasurable she can be a fucking amazing sex idol and a brilliant food critic and a writer and an activist and a mom right and i just i just really love her i find that um that point you raise about a sort of having maybe a, a sort of early idea of what feminism is as something that's quite sort of um not a lot of joy is involved in it for example not a lot there is you know it's it's something about maybe saying no to stuff rather than saying yes and that sort of rang a bell with me in terms of I definitely have I don't know maybe not quite the same but 
this idea, I think, when I was younger of some of feminism as being something maybe slightly problematic like that. And I don't think I'm the only one. There are lots of women, I think, who've come around to recognising that it's something different. I just wonder where that comes from. Where is, do you have any, I mean, this idea that this sort of odd way of thinking that feminism is not a good thing or something that we should be kind of proud of. I think it's maybe changing now. Maybe it's sort of our age. I don't know. Well, I think the answer is, unfortunately, the patriarchy. Um, but it's, it's true. It's like it is in the interest of the patriarchy to present feminism as militant, as I think you put your finger on it, as joyless, right? Yeah. Um, and in that way to create this kind of infighting among women, right? This like outdated notion that like, oh, if I'm a housewife um, and I like pink things, I'm not a feminist. Those people hate me. They hate everything I do. And so vice versa, I also hate them, too. All that leads to is fighting among women. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's what's so scary and awful about the patriarchy, about any dominant culture, is what it always does is it sows these seeds of dissent among marginalized groups. It makes them waste their energies fighting one another. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think she's a brilliant, she's a wonderful person to have as your kind of uh, the person you look up to at the end. I think that's great. <laughs> You're also incredible. Some top chef. So. <laughs> oh yeah, so I think that's another pandemic thing. She's been on my brain because, like, another of the things I missed right now is like being able to go out and eat food and travel. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, let's watch these shows and live vicariously through others. Yes, exactly. Um, well, thank you so much, Pam. I've had a really fascinating time talking to you today. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Lucy. This was absolutely delightful. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Pam Zhang. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture.